This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're on Saturday Magazine with Paul and Fiona. It is uh, just shy of 11.15. Paul, who's our next guest? Uh, we're going to be talking to Professor Daryl Higgins uh, from the ACU. Um, and and Daryl, just before we, we say hello to you, I just want to say that I received a message this morning when we announced you as a guest from one of our um, volunteers here, Chris Ferner, who said that Professor Higgins has been a, a long-time Joy uh, member during the 2000s and uh, was very much involved in in various programs on Joy as far back as our time in Coventry Street. So um, you've got a lot of history with Joy. So we thank you for your support. But the reason we want to talk to you is that you've just produced a very uh, interesting uh, and very important to our community, uh, a, a research paper on the prevalence of diverse genders and sexualities within Australia. Um, good morning. And um, please tell us about the study. Good morning. Um, lovely to be with you, Paul and Fiona. And I should say uh, happy midsummer to you both. And to all of the listeners. Um, look, this paper was um, some analysis that we did of uh, a major study that I'm part of, the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. And my colleagues and I had designed this study to measure the prevalence of maltreatment. And it was a byproduct of that that we've got this amazing paper that talks about um, not only the increased risk of experiencing child maltreatment that are associated with diverse um, genders and sexualities um, in Australia, but because we did such a good job of um, designing the, the study to be um, representative of the entire population, it's actually the first study that we have that accurately measure the prevalence of um, diverse genders and sexualities in and of itself let alone um, the staggering data that we found about the relationship with increased um, risk of having experienced child maltreatment. So just give us a couple of highlights of the study, um, Daryl, but also just give our audience an understanding of, you know, how do you define child maltreatment? Because I know there are a couple of things that, that come into that topic. Yes, yes. So maltreatment, we it's mostly about acts by parents, but not just. So we used um, a definition that looked at five different types. Um, so our maltreatment types include um, sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse, psychological or emotional abuse, um, exposure to domestic violence. So that's, you know, between um, parents or carers and finally um, neglect. And so those five types, we used um, some of the best measures that are available internationally um, in order to um, ask over a, a telephone survey um, of a random sample of Australian population to understand what is the um, likelihood that people have experienced um, child maltreatment. Um, but as I said, we, we really wanted to um, focus on um, understanding, uh, is, is this something that is evenly distributed across the population hmm. or are there some people that have uh, a higher risk? And, and of course, one of the things that we showed in our initial results that were published um, back in April last year was that women um, reported significantly higher um, rates of, of child abuse right across all the different types, but particularly um, sexual abuse, that was one that really stood out. Um, and so we knew that gender differences were there, but in that first study, we didn't um, separate out um, diverse genders, nor did we separate out um, on the basis of sexuality. So that's the purpose of this analysis, mm. is to really go in deep and say, um, 
what is the uh, relative likelihood that people who um, identify with a diverse gender or sexuality, admittedly this is in adulthood that we're asking, because our survey is 16 years of age and over are our participants, and we're saying during childhood, what did you experience? Hmm. But also that, that gives you a lot of data to say, you know, people will carry into adulthood then a lot of trauma from those formative years. And I think, you know, the, what the study um said to me was, my gosh, this is such valuable data mm. to help people mm. decide on what are the best services that we should be offering mm. to this cohort of people who, who need some medical support in those post years. And also, you know, what do you need to do now to protect the existing children who may be at more risk of these maltreatments mm. because they come from a diverse gender background? Absolutely. Um, and, and what we found was it was about three times the risk, both for um, gender diverse and sexuality diverse um, Australians, which, you know, is quite substantial when you think of, you know, what, what, what are the kind of demographic characteristics? You know, if you knew that there was a segment of the population that was at much greater risk of something, surely you would want to invest mm. in, first of all, better mm. prevention to mm. stop it from happening in the first place. And secondly, as you rightly point out, how do we adjust the kind of, um, you know, medical health, psychological services that we provide to those who have already suffered? Um, and I think on both of those fronts, there's a long way that we have to go. Um, you know, in our um, primary prevention, so stopping child maltreatment from occurring in the first place, Admittedly, the Australian government does have a national child sexual abuse strategy that does particularly um, identify LGBTQIA plus um, children and families as a, a target group. So I applaud the government for that, but we absolutely need to um, follow through not mm. only with sexual abuse, but mm. all the other forms of mm. child maltreatment, mm. which I think is really slipping off the radar. And of course, we know that one of the um, prevention strategies that we should have in place for other forms of child maltreatment is about parenting, improving the quality of parenting, improving not only the advice, but the supports that are available, evidence-based supports. Um, and so if parents who are raising children who are diverse, how are we tailoring the supports that we provide. How are we getting to those parents in the first place? You know, they might be struggling because they don't necessarily even know that mm. um, explicitly that they are the parent of uh, a gender diverse or a sexuality diverse child. If, uh, if you know, the, the young person hasn't come out, if, mm. you know, it, it, it's a complicated space. But I think what we have to do is start thinking about where is gender diversity and where is sexuality diversity in conversations around delivery of evidence-based parenting supports. And I'm really not seeing that happening yet. Because I guess the first port of call for a lot of parents would be maybe their, their local GP. I mean, if they're not, particularly yes. if you're not living in a, in an inner city area or a metropolitan area, in a regional town, the first port of call would be your GP. Now, are GPs... Um, have they been given the right uh, the right education or the right like and that, are they informed so that then they can help advise? I can imagine mm. that that would be one of the first parts places you would have to go. Absolutely, um, and and so they're kind of one of the target groups that we would want to call out. Is how do we um, both in the pre-service training for for doctors and in the kind of ongoing professional development and supports that are given to them? How are we highlighting these issues, and so that they're asking 
the right questions. And sometimes it's even, you know, a language issue. Like, you know, we don't want um, doctors to just simply be saying, um, you know, your son or your daughter. We don't just simply want them to assume yes, when they're course. talking, yeah. let's say, about sexual health advice for parents, that they assume that it's going to be an opposite sex partner. So how is that coming into the communication strategies that doctors are using with, um, you know, with parents at the right time? But it also, you know, it's not just about when there's a problem. It should actually be about supporting good, um, positive parenting practices. And that happens, you know, at the earliest stages. It happens at childcare centres. It happens at schools. Um, you know, it happens mm. at the, um, you know, the infant welfare centres mm. um, or whatever they're called in different states and territories nowadays. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I don't particularly like the phrase, you know, ch- uh, maternal and child family services because, of course, we should be um, focusing on uh, dads as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to be getting in early and, and having these diversity conversations and better support right from the get-go. So so I think that leads nicely on to the next part of the um, the unknown part of the study that you actually found through the great research that you've, you've completed is just the number of young Australians that identify um, with gender diversity that isn't the normal binary ones that we accept. Now, those numbers were, were staggering, Daryl. Nine and a half percent do not consider themselves to be heterosexual in total. But between 16 to 24-year-olds, that number jumped up to almost 19 percent. Now, that's a fascinating statistic. Absolutely. You know, it it shows like between the older participants in in, in our study, which includes me, you know, age 45 and plus, um, the the proportion who identified uh, with a diverse sexuality um, was less than um, uh, one in 20 um, compared to um, around one in five in the 16 to 24 years Mm. of age. Mm. Um, And we saw similar patterns around gender identity. The rates, of course, are much smaller than sexuality diversity, um, but we found um, around about half a percent of the population in the 45 years and over age group were identifying as a diverse gender, um, and that's climbed um, to 2.3%. So, mm. you know, that's a, that's a massive increase mm. from 05 in the 45 and over group to um, 2.3% of 16 to 24-year-olds. And yet but again, kind well- of joining those two conversations together, it then means that this is not a, um, a, a minute uh, and irrelevant part of the population, mm. you know. So when we're thinking about both our prevention efforts and our support for those who um, unfortunately have been subjected to different forms of maltreatment, and I've got to say our data also show that they were more likely to experience not just one type but multiple forms. In other words, experiencing, let's say, sexual abuse and emotional abuse mm. or experiencing... Um, exposure to domestic violence and neglect. Um, so given that increased likelihood of um, multiple forms of maltreatment, how are our mental health and our, um, and our general health services addressing this when they're even thinking about you know, responding to trauma across the population? 
Mm. And also just getting some basic support services in. I mean, we go back to the basic education. Mm. If if 19% of our young people identify as something other than heterosexual, then all of the medical, um, both, you know, the physical and, and the mental um, provisions that we're providing have got to start understanding what does that mean for them in the future mm. when, the, when that cohort becomes older? What, what are the medical service support needs that we have? And you're right, it's it's a massive number. It's, a, it's a, you know, it's climbing up to a quarter of the population. Yes, yeah. And when you think, you know, from the perspective of a GP with, you know, a client load coming in, if they are dealing with young people, mm. you know, it means every fifth client coming mm. in mm. is not going to be identifying as um, heterosexual. Um, so, yeah, Daryl, that's, Darryl, that's, that's an amazing, it's um, it's incredible work. Thank you. Now, Daryl, unfortunately, we do have to leave you here because we uh, have run out of time. I definitely would love to have you back on to hear more about, uh, you know, the outcome of the where, where all this uh, great content is going to go and all this data. Yeah, I was going to say, Daryl, a lot of people listen to this program will be very interested to read um, more about the the research paper. If if people want to make contact yes. with you to to understand more, where can they where can they learn from? Yeah, so the, um, as I said, this is part of the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. So we have a website, acms.au. So people can go there, they can read all about the study, they can find links to free access to each mm. of these articles, yeah. or they can look online at um, the Australian Catholic University. I'm at the Institute of Child Protection Studies, and our website as well has links to um, the study and to all of the articles. And I would love to have further opportunities to engage with you and your listeners and to hear about what people see as being the important next steps once we um, take on board the implications of uh, this really important data. Okay, um, Professor Daryl Higgins, Director of the Institute of Child Protection Services at the ACU. Um, thank you for all of your work, Daryl. This is a, a sterling, sterling piece of work. And, you know, to the rest of your team who've done a lot of the legwork um, going through the numbers. Um, yeah, it's outstanding. Thank you for your, your work. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, Daryl. Take care. Thank you. You're on Saturday Magazine with Paul and Fiona. Stay with us. We've got a whole bunch more coming up. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.